The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Hello and welcome to Gone By Lunchtime, the Spin-Off's Politics Podcast. Piki Mai Kaki Mai with me today in the Spin-Off studio. We have Ben Thomas of Excelsium Communications, which sounds a little bit like what a sort of company that a Batman villain might run. Sort of yeah, kind of everything from ballistic missiles to like school lunches made with seaweed or something. Excellent. That's is, are those some of the companies you're representing I think, at the moment? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think it comes from a Latin root. You'd uh, have to ask our managing director and classic scholar Matthew Hooten. Annabelle Lee is with us as well, uh, the executive producer of the Hui, which is how how far into that season are you now? Um, halfway. Halfway. We, we just got an extension of five more episodes, so we're officially halfway now. And how many uh, episodes in a row are you now um, that you've asked Paula Bennett to come on the show, and she's politely declined? Nine. Nine. That's pretty good going. Um, today we're going to talk about a bunch of things. Um, it's been a quiet time. We've had a recess for it seems like forever. How many sort of four weeks? Have you have you guys been sort of desperately missing the opportunity to tune into Parliament TV and watch the rowing? It's it kind of it freezes New Zealand politics in amber, doesn't it? It's sort of this eternal present. Um, where, where there's no kind of progress on any issues. So we just have to, to go back to sort of three and a half weeks of mulling over the Labour Party's standing as, the, as, as a possible next government. Um, yeah, it's, it's a depressing time. And about, does it make a difference when you're producing a weekly politics programme to have Parliament mm, away? Not really. Not really. Good. Among the uh, various things that have been going on, all the same are the kind of... Um, Auckland's unitary plan being reported back by the Independent Hearings Panel, as well as um, the Māori Party have been in the news a fair bit, both by um, announcing that they won't be backing Helen Clark and talk of some kind of um, informal alliance with the Mana Party. We'll talk about that a bit. We might talk about some Saudi sheep. We might talk about some steel. We might even talk about a bit about David Bain. But let's start. We won't dwell on the unitary plan because... Interested leaders, readers, readers might like to um, have a look on uh, the spin-off website. There's a special unitary plan podcast under the War for Auckland heading. Here in the spin-off office, there's a lot of war paint and commando roles and generals standing to attention as we um, embark on our battle for uh, the young people of Auckland. I, I really preferred the uh, melopropism of a prominent left-wing blogger, the spin-off's war on Auckland. Yeah, I, sometimes <laughs> I felt very void. I made <laughs> that mistake from time to time too, I have to confess. No, but that's interesting. Um, uh, that prominent, prominent left-wing blog lord has been tying himself in knots. It's a difficult time for many of us. It's challenging. Um, 
but actually, I should also say just um, that uh, Jose Barbosa, who um, the hardest working man in Auckland, has written an introduction to all the podcasts that you can listen to on the spin-off. What's it called, Jose? So people can sort, search, search it. I've completely forgotten the spin off guide to podcasts. Yeah, this, it's called the spin off guide to podcasts. So if you sort of search. Sensible. If you choose your favourite internet search engine okay. and put in spin off guide to pod, introduction to podcasts, you'll probably find it. There's a bunch of other things. Alex Casey's on the rag is even better than this podcast. Um, there's, some, there's some cool ones that Naomi Arnold did. But we're here to talk about politics, the unitary plan. Gosh, a lot of ink has been spilled on it. Does anyone have, uh, have well, what are your responses, friends, to the unitary plan? It's, a, it's interesting. You see these kind of d- dried up, shriveled husks walking through Mount Eden, and, and, and when you cut them, they appear to bleed outraged editorials and, <laughs> and, and interviews with Bernard Orsman, <laughs> who um, I, I guess we should probably clear up that the unitary plan does not, as, as seems to be widely reported in the Herald, require people in suburbs to raise their homes <laughs> and, and, wa- and build shoebox apartments for immigrants. Wake up in the morning and see the them. bulldozers lined up, ready to pile in. <laughs> no. It's, uh, I, I mean, part of, it, part, of it, part of it shows, you know, that maybe we are closer to being rational economic actors um, then you know the new the new economics movement or s- economics uh, you know psychology sort of suggests, um, but because these people, when presented with higher property values for intensification, seem to feel they have no option um, but but to replace their current residences. Yeah, it's um... Annabelle, your take on the unitary plan. Have you managed to get through all of it yet? Oh, I've read the whole thing. Good, good. Yeah, twice. One and a half million words. Mm-hmm. Have you also read the Chilcot report? Twice. Good. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Um, well, you've, you've, was, been, you've been on hold to Paula Bennett for a while now, right? Like. <laughs> um, obviously, it was something that the council was compelled to do by the government. Is it going to make a difference in terms of the housing crisis, I think, is um, the big question. Uh, I, I think until the government steps in and... Um, take some responsibility for things like immigration. Um, that probably for people sleeping in their cars and staying at Tepuya Marae, it won't. Um, it's all good to have development and houses being built en masse, but unless those houses are being ring fenced for first home buyers or social housing, then they're just going to get snapped up by speculators and will be left in the same position. So, n- not sure how much of a difference it's going to make in, in terms of um, um, providing homes for the people who most need it. Well, it's, it's going to make building more homes easier, both within the city limits and, uh, and on the outskirts of but town. But will it make them no. more affordable? Well, uh, by building more homes, you actually make all of them more affordable. Um, I, th- I think there's this artificial distinction between, drawn between affordable homes, which are sort of seen as kind of cheaper, and, uh, and, and the existing housing stock, you know, when we talk about unaffordable Auckland homes, that's because you know South Auckland homes, you know that uh, you know used to be kind of three hundred thousand dollars 
six years ago are now sort of in the $500,000, $600,000 range, right? And that's because there's a lack of supply. So if you actually build more expensive homes, then you give more options to people at the top of the market, and they're not actually outbidding people in the middle and the bottom of the market. So just, just increasing the supply at whatever kind of stage of it um, actually does improve affordability. But what, one thing that the unitary plan uh, and, and the whole housing affordability stoosh has shown up is just how susceptible we are to PR messaging, which, I mean, is probably good news for firms like Exceltium, but, um, you know, for the last, well, since 2007, if you read John Key's, uh, you know, fulminating speech about housing affordability back then, condemning mm. the Clark government for mm. not doing enough, um, people, politicians have been saying, we need to have more, we need more affordable houses, we want to improve housing affordability. Matidia today says the exact same thing, but, but says it, you know, in the way that it actually is, goes on Radio New Zealand and says, we would like to see house values drop. Now, it's the exact same message, but um, instead of being greeted with sort of warmth and, and a receptive audience, she, she was just about kind of dragged out of town and thrown in a swamp. It was an amazing interview, that one with Guy Nesper on Morning Report, in which she said that the house prices should come down by 40 50%. And it was kind of, oh, Joseph, it's good to hear you're playing that background uh, CD with the building noises on it. That's, that's very apposite. Um, and yet, and, and she's right, but can you honestly say you would ever advise a politician to say that how they actively want to see house prices drop? You wouldn't, but that, that's actually the flip side of what people are talking about. Yeah. When people say that we're going to increase housing affordability through increasing supply, what they mean is we're bringing down the value of yeah. houses. Yeah. Now, of course, the government has no intention of actually trying to bring down the value of houses. And and when you know when we get into these questions, kind of probing politicians saying, "What do you really want to see house prices f- prices fall by forty percent, thirty percent, twenty percent, whatever?" That's completely arbitrary. There's no way a politician can actually sort of mm. say, "We are going to reduce house prices by ten percent." What they can do is say, "We're going to increase supply. We're going to you know lessen demand through you know immigration controls." Um, I, you they're know, not saying that, are they? But but yeah, what what no. ha- what happens is that you know you actually get people like Matidia who are you know in a way punished for being honest. Um, mm. Meanwhile, the government makes noises about affordability, but I think we've we've really seen. I mean, during the recess, they, their big housing announcement was that they're going to make more money available to first homeowners um, through KiwiSaver subsidies, which will just have the effect of bumping up mm. prices further. Mm. So I, I mean, I th- the, I affordab- the, the, the affordability requirements that were in the unitary plan, as notified, which was something like ten percent of all developments of more than fifteen dwellings should be in the affordable category, were chucked out by the panel along with various other things in their attempt to, as they say, pare it down on the advice of MB, i.e., on the advice of the government. So what you talk about, Ben, about the idea that the, the affordability will come when the market becomes more saturated, which is true, mm. that's fine, but that's 30 years. That's a long time to live in a car. I, th- I, th- I think you're looking... Well, with people who are living in a car right now, I, I don't think that's because you know their deposit is sort of a few grand short. Um, that's where social housing um, and, and government provision of accommodation has to come in. And, and is that in the unitary plan? Is the council compelled to build social housing? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, I don't think that. No, I think, I think they, in the plan decisions. itself, they've decided to remove most of that. Let's not talk about the unitary plan anymore because um, there's a lot more that you can read on that. If you go to the War on Auckland site, um, you can also watch Shamabil Ikab um, call bullshit on various things. He's out there with a sort of bullshit divining rod identifying things that need to be 
put in front of the public and have bullshit shouted at them. Um, let's meanwhile move on to the kind of biggest immediate political story of the week, Annabelle, I guess, which is, maybe you can maybe you can explain it to us, it involves Marama Fox and the Māori Party and Helen Clark's bid for the Secretary General role at the United Nations. That's right. So Marama Fox has come out and said that the Māori Party um, doesn't support... Um, Helen Clark's bid to become um, Secretary General of the UN. Um, obviously, um, there's bad blood between Clark and the Māori Party, which, you know, over the foreshore and seabed legislation, which led to the establishment of the Māori Party. Mm. What's kind of surprising about this, though, is about about four months ago, the Ururua Flavel did speak in support of of Helen Clark and the mm. other interesting factor is that when Helen Clark um, went to the UN and had her porphyry there she was escorted by Tukuroi Rangi Morgan the president of the Māori mm-hmm. Party who spoke very highly of her um, yeah so I, I think while there's no surprises that you know that Marama has taken this stance it, it kind of shows that again the, the Māori Party is a little bit it just looks odd when the president is supporting her. You know, a couple of months ago, Te Ururua was, and, and now they're making a big And Tariana Turia, the, the founding founding leader of the Māori Party, has is, is spoken in support of Helen Clark as well. She has. And, and you know, I think as a, a party that prides itself on pragmatism and being at the table and in the face of um, global warming and, um, you know, Pacific Island atolls, you know, at risk of climate change, it would be great to have someone from the Pacific region um, in that role. So, you know, from that perspective, it makes sense for Helen Clark to be there. At the same time, you know, Helen Clark um, voted against the um, Indigenous Declaration. Uh, what's the word? You know, United, United Nations Declaration for Indigenous, Indigenous right. People, which yeah. um, Peter Sharples, Dr. Dr. Sir Dr. Peter Sharples, um, I think, confirmed. In in New York, it was that 2010 maybe. That's yeah. right, and she was the prime minister during the um, the two Hoi raids, where um, you know Annette King described the the children of of two Hoi who were held at gunpoint as collateral damage. So, you know, she probably should have. Um, done a bit of homework before she applied for that job but and then, maybe tendered some apologies to those communities who are rightly still really upset. Tamati Kruger has um, come out in support of Marama's criticism of Helen Clark and it's it's um, it's unfortunate, it's not a good look for her but she probably should have done um, a, a little bit more to try and mend some of those yeah. um, bridges that she blew up so spectacularly. What about the response though, the um, I've been slightly staggered by the number of times that I've heard it. I mean, the political utu has been mentioned, there's that. Treachery and treason. Everyone's saying treachery and treason, and that seems a little bit over the top. Well, it's all, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think there comes a time when we have to admit we haven't all read the luminaries, and we're not all for Helen Clark for SG. I mean... Um, the, this this kind of you know New Zealand ink red socks kind of approach to Clark's um, UN Secretary General, but obviously she's not the same kind of sort of lunatic that Kevin Rudd is, which disqualified him from Australian support. But 
you know, there are real problems with her record. Mm. Um, and, and one of those problems is that in the, in the um, infinite trade-offs that you always have to make in politics, um, under Clark it often ended up Māori being traded off. Um, yes. and, and what I found particularly interesting was that Dover Samuels, um, who Clark pretty ruthlessly disposed of within the first few months of her government as a minister mm. over allegations that were eventually unsubstantiated, um, has come out and said that the Māori Party is extracting political utu. Um, mm. at, at the same time, I, you know, I think they're justified. Um, Annabelle mentioned Tamati Kruger, who you know, I think is one of the greatest statesmen who's been produced in New Zealand in the last century. And he said... Um, you know, Helen Clark would be a greater person if she had acknowledged yes. these mistakes. Yes. It just seems to me, Annabelle, a little bit ridiculous to, to pick up what Ben was saying, that we can't have people with different opinions on something <laughs> like this because we all must band together. Hmm. You know, it's like it's, 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 like it's a sporting like, event yeah, where everyone yeah. must, and you know... The idea that there's any dissent is somehow kind of well. It's particularly it, ironic when it's journalists that are, you know, that are saying that sort of thing because, you know, as journalists, you're supposed to support the idea of robust debate and the competition of ideas and all of that, th those sorts of ideals. So to have journalists saying it's, you know, treason and so on and so forth seems a little bit um, alarmist and emotive to me. Um, yeah, it would be obviously um, a great thing for New Zealand and, and our Pacific Island neighbours to have Clark in there. Um, unfortunately, she may have ankle-tapped herself and really she only has herself to mm. blame for that. I'm sure had she gone to Tamati Kruja, had she tried to make amends with Tuhoi, they would have, um, you know, they're a forgiving people, they would have accepted that. If she had perhaps looked back and said, you know what, I probably could have handled, handled the foreshore and seabed seabed issue better yeah. I accept I made some mistakes and you know I'm open to having a conversation about that I yeah. think people would have been a lot more ready to um, accept and forgive and support her but the fact that you know she remains um, bloody minded in her um, in, in her approach towards those issues I think has come back to haunt her I mean, I think we can all agree that the main problem with this the, this whole episode has been that it has distracted attention from taking the piss out of Kevin Rudd, <laughs> which has been the most entertaining mm. part of the whole battle so far. Which Helen Clark gets. I mean, is Helen Clark going to win? Anyone? What do you, I mean, she she sort of got how many? How many? How many? I, th I, th I think we suffer from a bit of Stephen sort of Adams syndrome when it comes to. To, Stephen to, Adams, the basketball player. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the, the basketball player. You know, when, when we, we sort of... I think we, he's the best NBA yeah, player. We, yeah. We, yeah, we tend to think, oh, look, he's, he's really established himself as one of the premier players in the, in the NBA. Um, you know, Clark, um, Clark gets sort of, you know, kind of mentioned approvingly in papers like The Economist. Um, but but she hasn't really been uh, reported as a front runner in the first. You're round a of fucking traitor, Ben Thomas. Stop this. This is just got to stop. No, no, it reminded me. Nobody would approve more of the treason designation than Clark herself. She always had a bit of a Louis the Fourteenth sort of vibe. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the prime minister can, by definition, cannot leak. You know, yep. and uh, yep. <laughs> I watched the Al Jazeera debate, and I, I started off cheering for Helen because mm. you know that's what New Zealanders do. But I have to say, I swap camps to the, 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 po the Portuguese she, Guterres no, no, no the, the, um, the, is she Portuguese the Brazilian or the Costa Rican oh the Costa Rican what's her name she was in yeah she was a what's her name oh, she was an F something like that something like that um, 
Use your computers, everyone, and look up the name and just send us a text. That'd help. Um, um, uh, in other Māori Party news from the longest political recess in the history of New Zealand politics, we have talk of uh, a detente between the Māori Party and the Mana Party, um, Annabelle, which has been sort of brokered or at least kind of expounded by Māori Party President Tuku Morgan. Yep. Tuku and Horni have had a little hongi, little hariru, little afi I think I think um, a proper kind of um, uh, proper coming together, a proper mm. reunification has been ruled out. Is that right? Well, the, he went up north like within days of being elected president and uh-huh. went and had a, um, a, a hui with Hone and literally within hours of the meeting, the Māori Party um, let go a press release saying there was no appetite for um, any sort of official um, um, arrangement with, with mana and Māori. I think really it's just about shoring up um, waiariki for te ururoa and possibly doing some sort of electorate deal on, you know, who who stands where. But it's kind of ironic because Tuku came in and he was, you know, immediately he said that he wants to win all the the Māori seats back um, from the Labour Party. In Te Taitokero last time, Hone only lost by, uh, I think it was seven eight seven eight hundred. And um, but at, at the last minute, the Māori Party started encouraging. Um, their supporters to vote for Calvin. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how things play out with um, Tukuroirangi over the next few months. You know, he's he's a guy who can get things done, as Ben has said to me before. He's an establishment figure. When things got tough with um, Tuhoronuku and Tekotahitanga, the government sent in Tuku to try and broker a peace deal uh, between them, but you know, he the, the Māori Party has a lot of big personalities. Honi Harawira has a giant personality of his own. So, to see whether or not they can keep it all together until the election will be interesting. If they did, Ben, if they did did reach some arrangement where they said let's stand uh, in either or, mm-hmm. and and you know maybe you got you know, Annette Sykes and. Well, involved, I or I mean, I mean, I mean, is it is it, is it possible that they could? The, 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 I mean, it'd be bad for Labour, wouldn't it, if that happened? You you could see. Yeah, that's right. Um, four, I, five seats go to one or the other. Yeah. yeah, look, it's going to be hard to dislodge Labour. Um, mm. I, th- you know, Kel- Kelvin Davis has done a great job mm. as an MP. Really Although he may be a victim of his own success, because if they run the two MPs for one argument yeah. up there, you, you mean put him high on the list? Yeah, because he's been he's yeah. been you know he's given a promotion. He's done a great job. Yeah. He'll definitely get in on the list. So there well, may well, you know if, if Horney runs that line up north, they're quite astute voters up there. They have Ke- the highest Māori yep. voter turnout yep. in any of the Māori yep. electorates. So it, it may get interesting. Well, Ke- yeah, Kelvin could be a Kelvin could be a victim of the. I, I hate the phrase, but it became popularly referred to the man ban in Labour. You know, this sort of this this bid for fifty fifty representation. Mm. Um, when when you go through the um, because the majority of uh, electorates are held by men for Labour, in order to get their caucus to sort of fifty fifty men and women uh, MPs after the election, they're actually going to have you know probably about the first sort of seven or eight people on their list will need to be. Uh, women, which which counts mm. against Kelvin in that sense, um, and is why tr- the, the the newly retired from his electorate, Trevor Mallard, is going to have a hard time uh, coming back mm. on the list. Um, but I, I miss you announced that speakers are gender neutral. 
<laughs> I think Trev's a bit too red-blooded old labour to abide by that. Um, but yeah, it absolutely makes sense. There's no reason for the Māori Party, which has no chance of winning in Te Tautokoro, to to you know put its its resources into that kind of fight. And similarly, it would it, it advantages them to shore up uh, their co-leader Tūrua Flavel in Waiariki. Um, what one one thing could, one thing that might be interesting is that you know Tuku Tuku is an establishment figure. He's you know he's always got a cell phone on. He's um, he's very well known, mm. and and part of the challenge. You know, you don't necessarily want a party president who has a higher profile than yes. your leader, and so I think they've got to be very clear to ensure that Tūrua and Marama Fox are, are still the faces of the Māori Party mm. in public. He's always got his cell phone on. The other thing that will be interesting too is that the more seats that the Māori Party wins, electorate seats, the more it kind of puts Marama at, at risk, really, doesn't it? Because she she did it. She got in on the list, so you know if they did a deal and they won um, the Maori Party, won Te Tai Hauaru mm. off Adrian Dudafi, um, mm, yeah, you know, you like, get a top up. The, yeah, 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 yeah. So it'll be interesting to see where they put her and if they try and cut a deal in Ikarwarafiti, where you would think she'd be a natural fit because that's her rohe kind of thing, but it doesn't look like Mecca's going anywhere and um, Labour have never lost Ikarora Fiti, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Let's um, cast our view uh, around the globe at sort of a couple of kind of general trade-ish related issues. First being the steel thing, um, which has sort of bubbled away for the last couple of weeks, I suppose, after it was splashed on the Sunday Star Times, which involves, it turns out, Zespri, which is the silly name given to kiwi fruits, a kiwi fruit branded overseas, um, turns out that someone was given a warning that there could be some retaliation if an investigation into steel dumping by Chinese in New Zealand is pursued, uh, and it all ended up being a bit embarrassing for Todd McClay, didn't it, Ben, who was forced in the end to put a line that no minister wants to put into a press release saying, I apologise to the Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, the, the circumstances are a bit murky around this, as they always are with trade. Um, so there were allegations that the Chinese, um, the Chinese government were threatening uh, non-tariff non, non sanctions on New Zealand goods, perhaps kiwi fruit, and that they had sort of, these threats had been made through intermediaries uh, to Zespri over in China, um, and the New Zealand government, you know, was sort of, you know, was, was trying to avert this threat or, or, or wasn't on top of it. Um, and then the, Todd McClay um, said there's, there's no substance to this. Then, then it was revealed that actually there had been communications between MFAT and uh, Zespri about, about the sort of heads up they had received, whatever the substance of it, um, and that McClay hadn't, you know, had, had sort of forgotten um, leaving the Prime Minister out sort of on his own. This isn't the first, first even recent occurrence of um, ministers sort of leading the Prime Minister astray 
and um, and and leading him to misspeak. Paula Bennett, as you'll recall, um, did the same thing over the Ministry of Social Development and the Salvation Army, supposedly individual flying knock, squads, the flying squads, <laughs> knocking, knocking on every parked car in Auckland and embarrassing entangled teens, you know, <laughs> trying Which to was, force them into temporary accommodation. And it was it was all it was all not true. And, and it was it was all it was all a misunderstanding or a lie, depending on how you look at these yeah. things. Um, and yeah, look, it's. But in this case, it was. It seemed like there wasn't, in, in, or at least the the position for the prime minister is that he wasn't informed. I think I think his his trade person in the department of prime minister and cabinet knew too, but it wasn't considered important enough to pass up the chain. Yeah, and look, and 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 that's probably true. That's we all, st- that we still don't, plausible. You used to you work know, in, the, that, the, in that mess. Yeah, look, there's a story. There's a story um, today or yesterday about. Um, how kiwi fruit have been held up at the border mm. um, because some fungal rot was found. Well, yeah. you, you can't argue with fungal rot. Fungal rot. So, um, <clears throat> so whether that's connected or not, you know, obviously people will draw the draw the, uh, connect the dots. But but that may or may well, not be Well, there was there was that right? time, wasn't it? Was it during the botulism scan where there was some meat was held up on the on the yeah. border and then everyone? Mm, what an interesting coincidence. Yeah, and I so mean, I wouldn't uh, want to look. We, we we have no way of knowing at this point. But yeah, what what happens is. It, as soon as the Prime Minister, you know, is a, when the Prime Minister's getting ready for his Monday morning media with Mike Hosking and the TVNZ, TVNZ's charming breakfast crew and that kind of thing, ready to shoot the shit, he, he needs a, he'll need a briefing on everything that's happened over the weekend media-wise yep. if he's likely to be asked about it. Now, if there's a coming trade war with China, obviously he's going to be... Um, I think he was actually overseas when it broke, but but at the same time, um, you, he was in Indonesia. Yeah, you would accept yeah. that he was um, that he was briefed on that. So it, it is a bit of a failing by McClay. Having to put if there was an about, emoji to to sort of illustrate Todd McClay's week, it'd be the the monkey with the hands over its eyes, looking a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> This, can that would can be this be a regular, oh, can this be a regular segment? <laughs> Annabelle Lee's politics and emojis. Yeah. <laughs> this has got a bold future ahead of it. And then let's kind of... Um, but then, no, you got more to say on this? Oh, no, no. You want to? I was, I was going I was going to do a smooth segue. You were going to segue. I was going to do the segue. Oh, okay, you could... Hey, look. No, you do it, man. Do it. No, just no, do you it. Got... No, I'll go and get a cup of tea. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you, but but you know, when when you talk about sort of misleading the prime minister, really, you know, M- M- Todd McClay, you know, is, is is sort of small fry in this. Paula Bennett's one of the sort of, you know, she she's middle range, but you know, the king of this is Murray McCulley. Um So, ca- casting casting our eyes back to another sort of tortured overseas, ma- you know, <laughs> f- foreign relations maze, the the Saudi sheep deal, the Agra hub in the desert promoting New Zealand sheep to the world, which seems to involve a lot of sheep carcasses and security guards, um, forcing out journalists and calling the police to confiscate their film. Um, So uh, New Zealand has been trying to negotiate a fair trade agreement with um, a free trade agreement with Saudi Arabia for quite a while. Um, This was... This, this seemed to hit the skids uh, because of the live sheep export issue. Um, there's differing opinions on whether that could have just been carved out and dealt with later. Um, and then uh, a, a, a millionaire slash billionaire in, in Saudi Arabia um, is... Is reputed to have held, is reported to have held up that trade deal, and so what? So so the foreign affairs minister Murray McCulley um, sent his agent in, uh, you know, kind of like heart of darkness, in, into the Middle East to try and sort this out, Bro- brokered an unorthodox deal, um, to to give this guy roughly around eleven point five million dollars. Innovative solution. 
Yeah, well, that, <laughs> and, and, and this, this was meant to sort of pave the way for a free trade agreement. Now, what happened is this, the sheep that were to be sent there as part of the $11.5 million reached the desert and promptly died because that's what sheep do in deserts. Um, it transpired that Murray McCulley, in getting this, uh, this rather unusual expenditure approved, um, had told his, cap- solution. Yeah. <laughs> had told his, 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 his uh, cabinet colleagues, in, in a cabinet paper that didn't have the appropriate cover sheet, which may seem like a sort of small kind of deal, but you know, but basically this seems to be something McCulley just sort of knocked up without consulting with Treasury or any of the appropriate authorities, um, you know, to kind of be checked or vetted, kind of chucked it on the middle of the table during cabinet and asked for approval, saying that New Zealand was facing a twenty to thirty million dollar lawsuit from um, Hamid Al Khalaf. The, um, the Saudi Arabian, but based on supposedly investments that he had made on the understanding that live sheep exports would be allowed by the government before they changed their mind. Now, there's no evidence of any legal action, and this, this week, um, Treasury... Documents released by Treasury showed that um, there was no there was no legal cause of action. There's not even even any evidence well, they hadn't of seen a it, threat. They hadn't seen any of it. Treasury yeah, said they could find no evidence. Yeah, it. there's yeah. there's been there's been nothing produced showing even a sort of cursory lawyer's letter or a cease and desist or a, or an optimistic request for eleven for eleven million dollars, let alone twenty or thirty. Um, and this is pretty typical of the way um, Murray McCulley seems to operate, which is. You know, and and the press talk about this in glowing terms. They they say you know McCulley, you know, he's unorthodox. He he takes shortcuts. He takes shortcuts kind of like our parents do. You know, the shortcuts that end up taking about four times as long, and driving down the wrong way of a one way street. Um, it, it it it's a pretty shabby Another affair. cruel attack on older generations from the spin off HQ. Look, I mean, completely the, unnecessary. The the best spin that can be put on this is that it was meant to be a bribe and it didn't work. <laughs> the, the, um, um, Annabelle, the, the, the Auditor-General report into this matter, which has been underway for over a year now, I think is nearly there. My, maybe even next week when Parliament resumes might turn up. Do you reckon that, that this could be the end for McCulley if it, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it ends up... I mean, if the Ben Thomas version of events ends up being roughly right do you think that McCulley's do you think that Key will give McCulley the boot I would be very 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 surprised if he did Uh, yeah I I don't think so can I just say quickly 11.5 million for an abattoir in Saudi Arabia can't afford 1.5 million dollars for peepee pods for our babies that um, are dying in what you know the um, chief coroner describes as an epidemic of sudi for Maori babies. Mm. Fortunately, there's been a Is change. There been a there's been a change YouTube? of heart yeah, this week. Yeah, wow, yeah. one meeting. What a difference one meeting makes. All of a sudden, we can't afford um, peepee pods, and thank goodness for that. And the, on the on the subject of payouts and comparisons of payouts, mm. we also had um, the David Bain money this week, which was nine hundred twenty five thousand dollars. But don't call it compensation, and it's a kind of make it go away, squeaky wheel type, uh, draw a line under it deal. Does that seem like a reasonable sum to you, Annabelle? What did I, how much did I say? Nine hundred twenty five thousand. Mm. Yeah. What what a 
says to me is that the deal that Taina Porter got was not a good one for yeah. two million because if you can get nearly a million dollars when you haven't proven yourself guilty and you haven't been in, in jail as long, then it doesn't seem very fair to be getting two million when you are most definitely innocent and you've been in jail longer. Well, it was interesting, wasn't it? Whatever you think, we, I mean, you know, and and and, and I mean, who, we, everyone has an opinion on David Bain, um, whether or not he was guilty or innocent, but leaving that to one side, when you listen to Amy Adams talk about a pragmatic solution and a fair solution, you kind of think, well, hang on a minute, how come Tainapura's sum wasn't adjusted for inflation? Mm. Yeah. Well, they're, 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 I understand that they've cut a deal for Tainer where he gets to accept the amount that he's been the offered while continuing yeah. to yeah. Um, to ask for more, which I think is a good and fair yes. thing, but yes. he definitely should be getting more. And I think that's right. I agree with that. I think it's uh, the, the, the government could have held out on that to, mm. as a disincentive to challenge it, but to their credit, they yeah. did say, yeah, all right, we'll, 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 kind of, we'll kind of... That was an honourable like thing to do, and it's about time someone like did something honourable for Tamer. It's like the sale of the century or whatever, like you've got that <laughs> now guaranteed, but now you can... Yeah, yeah. yeah double I mean, or nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Amy Adams said it, you know, it's a tough decision because, you know, this has already been through three reviews by retired High Court judges, you know, from here in Canada. Mm. Um, there was obviously no end to the Bain Camp's appetite for litigation on this. They were just going to keep going, you know, you've got, they're basically sort of like men possessed. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, there are cases like this, um, uh, you know, the Berrymans were one, this sort of family who were were charged for a, a bridge collapse on their property and spent the sort of next 15, 15 years of their lives kind of pursuing this grievance. Um, and, and sometimes it's just sort of considered the humane thing to do and, and practical from a government point of view in terms of the, the amount of hours and time you'll spend defending these things in court. Um, I think a lot of people feel uneasy that Bain got anything, um, but I think Amy Adams probably made the right decision. How much? How many jumpers do you think nine hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars can get you, Toby? Well, it, it depends. I mean, that's an interesting question, but it really depends whether or not they're home nets, or whether you're talking about op shops, or you know. True. I mean, it's an impossible question to uh, to answer unless you specify what type of jumpers. And on that note, I think it's probably a good time to wind things up. Um, Annabelle, Ben. Thank you enormously. Thank you very much, Jose Barbosa. Thank you also to uh, friends and sponsors at the spin-off, Lightbox, Big Pipe, Unity Books and Barkers. Um, we'll be back soon with another hard-hitting, sizzling, gone by lunchtime. I'm Toby Manhire. Thank you very much. Kia ora e te iwi, te he Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.